0: All right, while everybody's gathering their seats, finding their seat, Chafer Seminary Fall Registration ends Friday. Also, the um, Jeff Phipps is leaving tomorrow for Brazil, so be in prayer for him and for this trip, and he'll be um, involved in that for, um, I think he comes back on the 29th, so he's there a couple of weeks. And... Then we're going to have a candidate meet-and-greet on Saturday morning, and the speakers are going to be uh, two different men who are are, uh, running for uh, judicial positions. And what's valuable about this is what you're going to learn about what's going on with crime and punishment, what's going on in the courts. And these are very important events that we try to host to just become informed on that which is most direct has, has its most direct impact on us in terms of a local uh, local leadership, local politics, county, and and the courts. So we'll start serving, have some refreshments out about 7:30, coffee and everything, and then we'll uh, have those two speakers. Then we have a baptism service that's scheduled for September 3rd at one o'clock. We're going to do this out at the Stasi's home in Katy. And they have a pool in the backyard, so we're going to uh, use that for a baptistry. And we have nine at this point who are going to be baptized on that Saturday. So uh, it's still open. Anybody else who is thinking about it, uh, you can uh, just let us know. Just contact the church office, contact Cheryl or me, and um, we'll get you on the list and uh, prepared for Uh, That baptism service. And of course, anybody can come if you would like. We'll have that information available uh, as well. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. By the way, one other announcement. I will be going on vacation September 14th to October 1st. October 1st is a Saturday, October 2nd, I'll be back in the pulpit that morning. I will be going to South Africa, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, and Botswana, and I will be speaking at a church in South Africa as well as a church in Zambia, a church that Jim Myers has done quite a bit of work with over the past uh, 20 uh, to 25 years. So be in prayer for, for that trip and the preparation and the ministry along with the vacation time. So that should be very very interesting. All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer before I get started, and then I will open in prayer. Oh, by the way, Jim Myers is covering the whole time I'm gone. Okay, I forgot about that. All right, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful we have you to depend on. You are our rock, our fortress. You are our strong tower. You are the one in whom we depend day in and day out, casting our cares upon you because you care for us. Father, we are so thankful that we can look to you in times of trouble, and we have times of trouble in our nation. We are reaping the whirlwind. And we have sown the wind for the last 100 or 200 years, and it has grown and grown and grown, and now we're reaping the consequences. And Father, we need to be a light, each of us individually and as a congregation, a light in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. So Father, we pay that we might be that, and the only way to be that is if we have internalized your word so that it shines forth in our lives. Father, as we study tonight, help us to understand the principles of your word and how to apply them and relate them to, uh, to the circumstances of life. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Judges, and we're in Judges chapter 9, and while you are thumbing your way through the scriptures on your way to Judges chapter 9, you can stop off, stick a finger in First Samuel chapter eight, because we'll be coming back to that uh, momentarily as part of our study. So we're going to Judges chapter nine, and this is quite a long chapter. It's a very long chapter. It doesn't mention God. It doesn't mention anything spiritual. There's nothing related to doctrinal exposition here. It is the illustration, uh, really, of what happens as a result of the failure of Gideon. This is this is Gideon's legacy. Uh, usually, people don't look at it that way, but that's what it is. Because Abimelech is um, is Gideon's son, his illegitimate son uh, through his concubine, and this is the consequence of what happens as a result of Gideon leading the nation back into idolatry. So we were covering this last time, and when I was closing, we just looked at this chart again, one that's so familiar to us, expressing the theme of, of this book. It's so important. I, I remember when I was... Um, I was a third-year student at Dallas Seminary and got the privilege of teaching in what they called the Lay Institute on Monday nights, which usually only um, only fourth-year men could teach, and I, that was, so that was a great privilege, and nobody else signed up to teach judges, and I had signed up to teach judges, so I got it by default. But that was just a great eye-opening thing. And, and it's like a lot of other books in the Bible. Even a lot of good men do not understand the structures of some of these books. And um, and so often, as I've pointed out before, they look at these men in Judges through the lens of Hebrews 11. And that's not how the writer is writing it. He's, he's showing their warts more than their strengths. And he's showing what's happening in the na- nation as a result of the influences of pagan ideas. And on Sunday morning, I went through a very brief history, just pointing out just four, five or six different key individuals and their thinking from the early 1700s up to the uh, end of the 19th century, just to give you a sense of how these ideas have have entered into our history, entered into our culture, and now are, have been mainstreamed, so that we're we're seeing horrible things taking place in so many different uh, uh, so many different um, professions and in schools and education. I learned tonight that um, doesn't surprise me. I didn't just hadn't thought about it, but one of the reasons. That we're having problems with airlines canceling, having to cancel a lot of flights is they can't get pilots because they're imposing a lot of this uh, uh, transgender uh, pronouns on everyone. And so, if the flight attendants have to use these different pronouns, and the pilots do, and they have to carry out these things, they just they just don't want to put up with the foolishness, so they're retiring. And the same thing's happening in many many different um, areas of employment in the country. That affects the supply chain and many many other areas. So, it also takes believers out of positions of influence. And I'm not saying believers shouldn't take a stand. I think they should take a stand. And if you're in some of these positions, it, it, it depends on the position, but sometimes you can stay there and be a Daniel, and sometimes you can't. But you can't stay someplace that is going to impose their will on you to, to, to validate their paganism, and that's important. You, you can't go along with it. It just you just can't. That's that's compromise. So it's tough. Every situation is going to be different, but this is what's happened, and now it is absolutely eroding the foundations of this country and of business and economics and everything. We have yet to see what the consequences of this are going to be, but we see it a little bit today. My wife is a substitute teacher and had and had it, taken an assignment for the first two or three weeks, and she said teachers who had been teaching for 20 to 30 years were appalled at what happened yesterday. Uh, there are so many vacancies because so many teachers don't want to be there. They don't get paid enough. They're asked to validate a lot of these different um, uh, uh, things with the, the transgender ideology, and they don't want to do that. I'm not saying that's happening in, in, in uh, Spring Branch, but it's happening in a lot of places and so they don't want to put up with it, so they're going to something else. And that's caused a tremendous chaos. They can't even get coaches. You know, that's a, that's that's going to school, going to work and playing all day. So paganism is self-destructive, just as all sin is self-destructive, and just as all... Uh, pagan ideologies ultimately end in the course of death, Scripture says. So we see this in the, all the way through Judges. They're just these deteriorating cycles, and we're right there in the middle between Gideon and Jephthah with the consequences of Gideon's actions. We see that cycle of disobedience, then divine discipline, and then deliverance, even when they don't Repent. And by repent, I mean change their mind and turn back to God, and that's not happening in this cycle. So, as I was wrapping up last time, I pointed out that the issue is an authority issue. The it's the authority issue under the Mosaic Law, which was the Constitution of the land. So, just as we have people who just hate the Constitution and want to get rid of the of our Constitution, and are acting lawless, lawlessly. That was the same thing that was going on at the time of the Judges. The Constitution for Israel was the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, and God was the king, the ultimate authority in the land. And when the writer of Judges makes this statement, there was no king in Israel, he's not just simply talking about the fact that there was no monarch in Israel. He is saying that they have rejected God as the king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was anti-authority it was uh antinomian anti-law anti-morality three times this is stated for emphasis so judges is really as i pointed out last time is an argument as to why a human king was necessary in israel and that god had previously been israel's king but god is rejected we'll look at that in first samuel 8 in just a minute so it's a key book for understanding the foundation of biblical principles of leadership and governing, and that means uh, politics, how government is supposed to work and why it doesn't work. And we looked at those divine institutions, which are the absolute social structures that God instituted from, the, from creation. The first three are before the fall The next two are after the fall, and the sixth is Israel, which comes after the Tower of Babel uh, incident. And that these divine institutions are for believer and unbeliever alike. They're given for the perpetuation, the stability, the protection, and freedom of the human race. To the degree that they are recognized by any culture, any civilization, any government, there's going to be a measure of stability. But to the degree that they are rejected, it leads to instability. And we have just a, a, a whole culture that has come to the point where they are, I don't know what happened, it says it's, there we go, that we have rejected individual responsibility. We don't hold people accountable. Uh, when you look at what's happening in the major cities of this country, what's happening in the courts, that's what we'll learn about Saturday morning, what's happening in the courts in Harris County, and how these criminals are not even getting, their case won't get to court for maybe two or three years, and they're not held accountable. In the meantime, they're let loose, and you have, uh, violent felons who are released onto the streets and Commit violent felonies again and again and again with no accountability. Marriage is—it's been made a joke of with the uh, Supreme Court decision to validate same-sex marriage. It's also made a joke of marriage itself with um, uh, with with the uh, no-fault divorce. It's also uh, made problems for marriage with the way it handles uh, the, all this gender issue, that which just feeds the soul confusion that so many people have today. So marriage and family are deeply under attack. Government, in terms of their responsibility to enforce the law, to provide for the stability of the nation domestically, the protection against criminality domestically, uh, the protection against foreign enemies, providing a stable currency, all of these things are being violated. All of the divine institutions have been under assault in this country for... 200 years, as long as we've had the Constitution. It was a minority 200 years ago, a hardly noticed minority, but that minority grew as we saw it uh, Sunday morning. And so there's hostility to nationalism. Everything has moved towards globalism, and that's tied with economic stability and several other things. And then Israel and this current administration is just their their Middle East policy is just a nightmare. They're, they've all but uh, given a big huge green light to Iran to develop nuclear weapons within the next year or two, because they have completely failed. They reversed all of the policies of the previous administration. Uh, the, the, the Iran, the whole Iran thing is is very complex, but um, they've just eroded it. They've just backed away from everything. So these are the divine institutions. And what this this passage, Judges 9, 1 Samuel 8, passages in Exodus, Exodus 20, these were foundational in the thinking of the founding fathers. So uh, let's just go over to 1 Samuel 8 uh, to look at a couple of things there as we get ready. In 1 Samuel 8 we read that this is a transitional problem for leadership. And the problem is that uh, Samuel's sons, Samuel is getting old, his sons, uh, he made his sons judges over Israel, uh, but they did not walk in his way. They were dishonest. They lacked integrity. They took bribes, and they perverted judge, ju- uh, justice. That's in 1 Samuel 8.3. And uh, so the elders came together. They recognized the chaos that this was creating in the nation. And so they called for a a, a council of all the leaders in Israel, the elders of Israel, to come together. And they met with Samuel at Ramah. And this is what they said to him. Verse 5, "'Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways.'" Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Key phrase there, we want to be like everybody else. And they were distinct. They were a special theocracy established by God with a law code that was a perfect law code. Uh, it, was, it was perfect in the way God intended it and God wrote it and provided it. And it was distorted continuously and ignored continuously. So it, that was always a problem. Verse 6, we read, but this displeased Samuel. Samuel took it personally. I don't think there's a person in this room who wouldn't take something like that personally. That's how the sin nature operates. We don't think objectively. We think subjectively. And so um, Samuel does one thing positive, though. He takes it. He's displeased. He's upset, takes it personally. But he goes to the Lord in prayer. And that's how we should be. There's all kinds of things that happen that upset us in life, and we need to not react in anger or depression or uh, sorrow or discouragement. We need to go to the Lord in prayer. We need to claim promises. We need to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. You, but they have rejected me. So that again reinforces what I said a minute ago that Samuel was taking it personally. He was taking it as personal rejection. And it's the same thing when you witness. Don't take it personally when they reject uh, the gospel because they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Christ. And it's our job to tell people about the Lord and to give them the gospel. Verse 8, God goes on to say, um, At the end of verse seven, they have rejected me that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me. That means they have abandoned God and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. That takes us down uh, to verse eight. And then if we continue, and I don't have this on, the, on these verses on the screen, um, but starting in verse 9, God gives them a warning. You shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Now, this is not God attacking government. This is God pointing out the reality of what happens when fallen men, when sinners have too much authority. And so God goes on to say um, in verse 11, uh, what Samuel put, uh, gives Samuel the words, and this is what Samuel says in verse 11, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. So he's going to use uh, basically government bureaucracy to take care of his own finances. And I think we see a lot of that. It's not brought up. It's not brought out into into the light because of a corrupt judiciary today. But I think when you look at so many different political figures and leaders – who have allegedly worked for very uh, little money in the course of their career and never had a job that that um, that ha- would provide the kind of income that they can afford three or four mansions in different parts of the country. And uh, I know of one uh, uh, allegedly conservative congressman in our area who ha- had a... Um, Net worth of about five or six hundred thousand dollars when he was elected to Congress about eight or nine ten years ago, and when he retired from Congress, he had a net worth of about five or six million. Now, how does that happen on the salary of a of a uh, congressman? And so, these kinds of questions need to be asked. But that's what God's pointed out is that leadership uh, will uh, move in the direction of corruption and just. Uh, enhancing their own and strengthening their own power base and that's what's described in verses 11 to 12 verse 13 he'll take your daughters to be perfumers cooks and bakers and he will take the best of your fields your vineyards, your olive groves and give them to his servants so that relates to taxation so there's going to be uh, excessive taxation he's going to build the bureaucracy and this was what the founding fathers wanted to prevent was a government that was such a huge bureaucratic juggernaut that it ran apart from the elected leadership. And that's what we have in our nation. We can see an example of this with the FBI. Now, there are a lot of good, wonderful men of integrity, men and women of integrity who work for the FBI. But the upper leadership apparently seems to be corrupted to some degree. They have become politicized to a large degree. This has happened in almost every uh, uh, department of, of the government, and you have a huge number of bureaucrats that basically run everything apart from what the elected po- what the electorate wants. And this complaint isn't new. I can remember thinking through this and talking about it, discussing this in university classrooms when I was in college. This is a, this has been an ongoing problem, but today it is probably a hundred times worse than it was forty or fifty years ago. And this is what happened. it runs itself, and it doesn't matter who gets elected; the same policies, the same. Uh, procedures uh, get get enforced uh, under the nose of those who may issue opposite commands, so it just falls apart under its own under its own weight, and that's the danger. Our governments under corrupt sinners trend towards tyranny, which is what I discussed the last time. Now let's go back to our passage in Judges chapter nine. Now what happens in Judges chapter nine? is that we see an illustration of this kind of self-centered tyranny that is focused on just the self-interest of the leadership. And this goes on uh, and is described here. Before we get into that, one other thing to note is that this was the norm in the ancient world. You look at the two examples surrounding Israel in the ancient world. You have Egypt to their southwest, and you have Mesopotamia to their north and northeast. In Egypt, Pharaoh was a god king. And if you recall the story with Joseph, that after uh, when, during, after they have the uh, seven years of plenty, and they have all the they have put all of the grain in the storehouses. That even though they had uh, prepared ahead of time, that as they doled it out in the uh, seven years of famine, uh, they, they began to run low, and people began to run out of their own savings until they were starving. And what did the Pharaoh do? He, uh, he bought their land so that by the end of those, that 14-year pe- period, Pharaoh was the landowner of the vast majority of Egypt so that the government became basically the owner of all the means of production. And so this was not any different from uh, modern forms of socialism or Marxism where everything was fed by the government. So it was an absolute tyranny the pharaoh was deity it's a little different in mesopotamia the de- the uh, leaders were considered the sons of the gods so they're not an incarnation of the deity but they are one step removed from that and so the state becomes deified that always happens uh, in, in in through throughout history you look at the roman empire and the caesars Uh, got to the point where they were declared gods and they were worshipped as gods. And then Christianity comes along and they had competition. And so they wanted Christians to swear allegiance and to bow down to the Caesar as God, and Christians refused, and that was the basis for a lot of the persecutions. So because of sin and the self-centered orientation of sin that government trends toward, um, t- toward tyranny, towards absorbing all of the power. So this is the situation. So we come to Judges 9, and this is the continuation of the story of Gideon. It's continued through his son. So if we look back to just at the end of uh, chapter 8, to remind you in, chapter, in uh, verse 27... That Gideon uh, took all of the treasure that he had captured from the kings of the Midianites, and he had an ephod made. Now, an ephod is simply a garment, but the ephod would have been put on something. It would have been put on an idol. And so, as a result of that, he's leading the people back into worship, and they are worshiping this, this uh, ephod. Then we're told about his, his life. Following that, did Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went dwelt in his own house. He had 70 sons who were his own offspring, but he had many wives. He's acting like a Middle Eastern uh, potentate. He is acting like any other king, even though he never took that title. He had many, many wives, and he also had a concubine, which was a legally recognized mistress who is... Virtually a a slave, she's a slave or servant, and so she lived in Shechem. Now, remember, Shechem was a very important town. It's located in the uh, hill country of Samaria. Uh, Shechem is about maybe twenty-five miles north of Jerusalem and it is now uh, ancient shechem and the uh, and the tell and the archaeological excavations are in the center of Nablus. Uh, Nablus gets its name it's it's um, it's mentioned in the uh, New Testament Neapolis. Uh, Arabs can't say can't pronounce a p so they're really not Palestinians at all. They so they they would change it from Na, uh, Neab, Neapolis to Neabilis, and then that got shortened to Nablus. Okay, so when you, that's like when we go up north, those of you have been to Israel, we go up to up to Dan and that area into Caesarea, uh, Philippi. It's the area called Banyas, B A N E A S, which is from Pan. The Greek god Pan because there was a temple to Pan there. So it, it, that's how the name changes. So this gives you a picture of, of a modern Nablus. On the uh, left here, we're looking due north. On the left here is out Mount Ebal, and the picture is taken from Mount Gerizim, and you're looking down into the Nablus Valley. And this area inside the circle, we'll get some close-ups of it, is the Tel uh, Balata, which is uh, ancient Shechem. And then this is a picture from the taken from the east. And you have Mount Gerizim on the left, Mount Ebal on the right. And here is the Palestinian city of Nablus, and you can see a difference here. See the the density of the buildings in this area, and then look at the density of the buildings down here. This this is the refugee area, and when you're up on Mount Gerizim, you can look down on it, and you just see it's a, it's a visual demonstration of how they've just crammed all these, uh, and and it's an ongoing generational category. Uh, that the uh, Palestinians are refugees, so they're just stuck in this in this incredible poverty. but you have uh, the, the this is uh the Tel Balata, this is where Shechem is located, and then there's a church here in this um, in this circle that is jacob's well that 's where uh, Jesus talked to the woman at the well in uh, john chapter John chapter four. So we'll come back to some other pictures in 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 just a minute. So what happens is that um, Gideon establishes himself with his concubine and puts her up in, in Shechem, and she has a son who's called Abimelech. My father is king. That's what Abimelech means. And so then Gideon dies, and we're told he's buried in the hometown of Ophrah, and as soon as he was dead, the children of Israel again, uh, played the harlot with the spiritual adultery with the Baals and the Baal, Baal Berith, their god. Now, Baal Berith, the word Baal means Lord. It's like Adonai. But, and it, and it is applied to the, uh, what the, actually the son of El, who is, has become the head of the gods and goddesses in the Canaanite pantheon. And so you will find Baal sometimes hyphenated with other names because there were different Baals located local deities and there were these local Baal gods. And here it was Baal Berit. The word Berit is the Hebrew word for covenant. So he is called the God of the covenant. And this God of the covenant is here at Shem. So you, how did that come about? Why would they? Where did they get this idea of the God of the covenant? Well, who's the God of the covenant biblically? The covenant is the Abrahamic covenant, and it is Yahweh who gave the covenant to Abraham. And remember, Abraham uh, sacrificed, built an altar in Shechem. And so under paganism, what happens is you uh, start to pull in different uh, pagan ideas into your system, and it, that eventually takes over. That's what's happened with uh, uh, liberal Protestant Christianity. They've absorbed so many pagan ideas that they have given up uh, both the divine institution of marriage and the divine institution of family. And there are numerous uh, liberal uh, denominations that are validating same-sex marriage and even the ordination of those who are involved in a same-sex marriage. And they're, they're no longer Christian other than in name, uh, and they are uh, absolutely pagan in all of their belief systems. Well, that's what happened here is that that this location that was where uh, Abraham had camped uh, is now becomes the given an, the name of a false God. Uh, but it, it holds a residual memory of Abraham and the covenant God made with him, so that's where uh, the the name Baal Berit comes from. And so the Israelites forget God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies. They don't; they, they're just ingrate. We talked about that a couple of lessons back. And so now we come to the consequences as it's worked out in the next generation. And we come to this episode, and it's a long chapter. It has 57 verses, and we're not going to get through all of them uh, tonight. We're going to break it down uh, a little bit. But basically what we see here is Abimelech is going to um, make a plan. He's very smart, and he understands people, and so he's also manipulative, and he is going to work out a plan to assassinate the, his brothers on his father's side, because Gideon had had seventy sons by his many wives, so they all would compete to be king against Abimelech. So he needs to get rid of all of the competition. So he's going to create a a, a crisis and a conflict. Uh, in his family, and he's going to go to his mother's side of the family, and he's going to talk to his mother's brothers and his mother's father, and they're going to put together a plan so that his mother's side of the family is going to go and execute all of his brothers on his father's side of the uh, 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 of the family line, so that he can free himself to be, the, be their king. And so he convinces uh, that to do that. And then after um, going into that uh, agreement, they will make him the king over the nation. He is, they will, he has said in one verse that they made him uh, king. In verse 6, they made Abimelech king and then in verse 22, we read after Abimelech had reigned over Israel, not just over Shechem, but over Israel. So this is why I say that the first person anointed king over Israel wasn't Saul. It was Abimelech. And Abimelech is that that first king. Now, it's not the king that God authorized, but that I didn't ask that question. I asked the question of who was the uh, anointed the first king of Israel, and that's Abimelech. So he, um, he will then um, take control, and as a result of his power, there's going to be a reaction. And there's going to be uh, this episode uh, after verse 26 where Gaal, the son of Evid, uh, uh, tries to lead a revolt against Abimelech. This results in a civil war, and eventually Abimelech is, is killed, but it just—you see—the consequences of Gideon's sin just leads to total breakdown of of law and order, of of, of civil order, of the economy, and loss of life and, and civil war, and that's how things go in in uh, most of history. So, as we approach this, I want to point out a few things. First of all. This is the longest section, the Gideon section, from 6-1 through the end of chapter 9, verse 57, is the longest section in the book. And God doesn't take so much space to talk about something unless he wants us to pay attention to it. And a lot of people hit this, and it's kind of boring, and they don't understand it, and they don't see the, the threads that are going on there, so it's easy to kind of read past it and not take the time to analyze what what is going on here. So this is a to focus us. In many ways, this is sort of the centerpiece of the book of Judges to illustrate the theme of what happens when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. In other words, this is what happens in a country that gives itself over to moral relativism. And um, I don't know if we know a country like that, do we? We're living right in the middle of it, and this is what we can expect if things continue. Thank God we have some leaders in some states and in some areas that are very, very strong and understand the biblical issues and are believers and are trying to uh, fight this. But we also live in a world where that's the devil's world, and there are a lot of other powers and, and incredible amounts of money available to bribe, and to corrupt uh, leaders. And so we need to be constantly be in prayer for, for our nation. So this is the focal point, the center of the, of the story, the argument that the writer is making. And a second thing to observe is that in this chapter from the end of uh, actually verse 20, uh, 28 29 to 30 uses Gideon a couple of times, but it focuses mostly on his name, Jeroboam, which becomes the primary reference in this section. And there's no reference to Yahweh, only Elohim. And so this again shows that uh, that there's a spiritual problem in the nation and how Israel has been totally uh, paganized. And Jeroboam, remember, meant that um, let Baal contend. And it sounds like it means that that Gideon contended with Baal and won because he tore the altar down. But the reality is, is Baal comes back with a vengeance in this chapter and Baal uh, prevails over Gideon. Uh, then a third thing we observe is that there's a lot of attention to detail here. Now, I'm not going to dwell on a lot of the detail because then we'd never get out of the chapter. But it's ama- amazing that the Holy Spirit reveals this much detail. We look at many other episodes in Scripture. We're just not given that much information. But there's something here that he wants us to pay attention to, and I think it has to do with these lessons related to what happens in a nation when moral relativism takes over as a result of rejecting God. And so that's what this chapter focuses on. That's a fourth thing, is it focuses on this internal division and fragmentation of Israel and not on an external enemy, That they are their worst enemy. It's not someone outside that's attacking them. Fifth thing is that Abimelech is basically established to be a pagan king in opposition to Yahweh. He sets himself up as king uh, and it's contrary to the Mosaic law. And what does God do? Do we see God intervening anywhere in this? Not at all. God just says, hands off, and lets them self-destruct. That's how divine discipline often works in individuals' lives and also in a nation. As you want to go that way, great, I'll let you. And then they just uh, self-destruct, destroy themselves. So it starts off with, um, in verse 1, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem, to his mother's brothers, spoke to them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father. So he goes to his uh, uh, matriarchal or his maternal uh, uh, grandfather, and this he he's going to negotiate a deal. Verse 2, please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. What's better for you, that the 70 sons of Jeroboam reign over you or that one reign over you? And that the one who reigns over you is your own flesh and blood. Then you've got an inside track and an inside deal. So the first thing he wants to do is secure the support of all of his mother's relatives, and that includes all of the extended family as well, so that he can... Uh, split the whole family between his father and his mother in order to create this uh, this division. This is his basic offer. What's better for you to have the sons of Jeroboam reign over you, or me to reign over you? And so he enlists their support to um, and the support of, to uh, and the support of the Shechem uh, leadership. In order to go against um, Gideon, he goes to um, verse 3, we read, and his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, and their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He's our brother. So starts off, he convinces his his mother, his mother's father, his extended family, and then they go and they put pressure on the leadership in Shechem and they all uh, come over and they give uh, him 70 shekels of of silver, which they take from the temple of Baal Berith, I'll talk about that in a second, Uh, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men and they followed him so he's how many people how many men is he going to kill 70 how much is, it, is each life worth 70 shekels 70 men each life is worth a shekel that's pretty worthless that's that's like we're just going to pay, pay you 5 bucks to go kill somebody it has a their their life has no value there's no value for human life and these uh worthless men uh, who are considered r- reckless. That's the idea there for um, the, the, the second word has the idea of reckless, or they, they don't care about law and they don't care about uh, the consequences. And they are... Um, Worthless. That is, they have no no value to the culture or to the society. So he hires these, uh, essentially these assassins, to go after his his own uh, brothers. In verse um, verse five, we read, "Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the seventy sons of Jeroboam, on one stone." Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that somehow they they overpowered the 70 brothers and then they lined them up and they execute them one after another on this same rock. It's like uh, the French Revolution with the guillotine. You just line everybody up and cut their heads off one at a time and that's what basically happens here. They uh, kill them on one stone. But one gets away. Uh, his name is Jotham. And Jotham is the youngest son of Jeroboam, and he hides himself. And all the men, after this, all the men of Shechem gather together, all of Beth Milo. Now, nobody really knows what Beth Milo uh, describes. Uh, some think it has to do with some massive uh, uh, earthen platform that was set up uh, near, the, near the temple. Uh, to Baal Bereth, others think it 's other things, others think it 's a fortification just outside of Shechem, but no one uh, no one really knows. So here we have our our picture of uh, Shechem here between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Remember the scene in um, uh, in Joshua, where after they, the initial victories in the conquest. They split the tribes up, six, tri- six tribes go on Mount Ebal, six tribes go on Mount uh, Gerizim, and they are going to recite the blessings and the curses. Gerizim was the blessings, and what you see, you barely see it here, but Gerizim is covered with forest, but Mount Ebal is barren, and so it's believed that, that Mount Ebal has been cursed because of that particular incident. So here's, um, basically that's the same picture. Here we go. This is a picture from Mount Gerizim. This red shaded area down here is the area of the temple, the Baal Barith Temple. There is a standing stone that they discovered, which was part of this uh, uh, tower that was was built there uh, at that particular time. You have the uh, walls from the city at that time around here. This is where the gate was. You have later Iron Age houses over here, and the East Gate is over here. I've had the opportunity to walk through that a couple of times, and it's really a fascinating sight to see uh, what they have uncovered, which completely supports what is described in Judges, Judges chapter nine. And that's one of the great Aspects of archaeology. It doesn't tell you that the Bible is true, but when you have stories like this, and then you go out and you dig down through the layers and you discover, uh, that, that this is a, an accurate description of the city and what life was like at that time, that means that the Bible isn't just made up, some fantasy made up out of, uh, out of thin air. So this is, um, part of the foundations of the of the temple at Baal Barith, and this is looking back up in, into the city, and then this is part of the pillar over here. This is a schematic that describes it a little bit. You have the city wall, the northwest gate I just pointed out. This was the area of the temple, the area of the altar, the standing stones, and then you have this uh, massive standing pillar that's right there, that's described here, and then next to it is it was an oak tree, the oak of the pillar, and all of that fits the fits the plan. So and Job 9, 5, 6, uh, Beth Milo was probably somewhere in this area, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree, that's sometimes translated as an oak tree, at the pillar that was at Shechem. And so here is a, uh, you have standing stones, one of the standing stones here. This was where the pillar was further out. And uh, so there would have been an oak tree, uh, that location in in the ancient time. Now what happens at this time is that Jotham comes out. Jotham got away earlier, and now he comes out, and he goes up to the top of Mount Gerizim up here where he can be heard, where he has a bit of an echo uh, and an amphitheater behind him to help amplify his sound so that he can uh, confront the people of Shechem. And so he's going to give us a, a fable, as it were, uh, this is one of the most remarkable things that we find in judges and it is understood by many scholars of uh, ancient literature that this is one of the most fascinating uh, um, para- uh, it's not a parable it's a fable and it, because it's dealing with plants as if they were living things and that kind of a thing and so this is uh, in this parable he's going to give a divine interpretation of of uh, the ki- of kingship and tyranny, he says in verse seven. Let me just uh, read through the passage a little bit. He says, um, uh, "The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them." Now that doesn't really fit the scenario here because it is um, it is Abimelech who's going to get the people to anoint him as king. But the thing about a fable or, or even a parable is not every detail is made to fit perfectly, uh, but it's the general thrust of the whole uh, whole story. So he says, the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and now they're going to try to find a king. They're going to go on a search, and they're going to talk to these uh, different trees to see which one will, will rule over them. And they go to the olive tree and they go to the fig tree, and they go to the um, the vine, and to each one they ask them to rule over them, and they say, "No no, 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 why should I give up all of the what I provide for everyone in order to rule over them it's a uh, fascinating critique of the dangers of tyranny because they recognize that what they are doing, what they provide for uh, the civilization is a, something of value, and then what a king provides it has no value. That's the implication here. And so what happens at the end is all of uh, the, the trees then go to the bramble. Now, bramble doesn't provide anything for anybody. It doesn't even provide good shelter or shade. It just stickers. And so the bramble rep- is, is going to become the king, and that's not saying anything positive about, about kingship. Uh, The bramble says to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. There's no shade. So this is showing how empty government service is. It doesn't provide anything like the oak tree and the fig tree and the, the vine says, Then come and take shelter in my shade, and if not, let fire come out of the bramble. The bramble is going to, if you don't like it, then the bramble is going to punish you and destroy you. This is what a tyrant does. So verse 16, Now therefore, if you've acted in truth and sincerity. So verse 16 begins the application that Joash makes. Uh, or excuse me, Jotham makes to the people. He says, if you've acted in truth and sincerity, here are the two key words, if by making Abimelech king, if, you do, if you've done this out of good motives and for good reason, if you've acted in truth, that is, in integrity, it's the word emmet. We've talked about this a lot. It's related to amain. It has the idea of uh, faithfulness, stability, truth, integrity, And the second word translated sincerity, which is a poor choice of words uh, for translation, it has the idea of doing something in good faith, in absolute and total fidelity. If you've acted in integrity and fidelity in making Abimelech king, and of course they haven't, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and of course they haven't, and have done to him as he deserves, For and then he reminds them what Gideon did. For my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have been an ingrate this whole time. And then it's going to con- uh, conclude um, at the end. Now, verse 18, which I left out of the slide, but you have risen up against my father's house this day, and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the men of Shechem because he's your brother. If then you have acted in truth, notice he brackets what he's saying with two identical statements. If you've acted in truth and sincerity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, but you haven't, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. So he's basically uttering a curse judgment on them. If you've been had integrity and, and operated in good faith with Gideon, with Jeroboam, then, um, uh, then rejoice in Abimelech. This is a good deal. But if you haven't, Let Abimelech, this is the point of comparison with the parable, let Abimelech be like that bramble and just uh, devour you with fire and destroy you. This is a powerful indictment of, of, of tyranny. And so Jotham then immediately runs away and flees, and he goes to Beir, which is a Hebrew word for a well, and he dwells there, he hides out for fear of Abimelech, his brother. So they don't do anything. But what ha- and what happens? Starting in verse 22, then after Abimelech had reigned over Israel for three years, so they treat him functionally as king, and he's ruling over all of Israel, not some foreign power, but someone from within their own midst as a tyrant then God, now God is going to intervene, but not in the sense that people would think. God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, uh, a spirit of destruction. And the men of Shechem deal treacherously with Abimelech. So God stirs up trouble between them in competition, and, um, and now that the crime committed three years earlier is going to come back uh, to haunt them. And the men of Shechem then set men in ambush uh, against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told to Abimelech. Now I'm going to stop here because we get into the next part of this episode in verse 26 And this is when Gaal shows up. Now, Gaal, the son of Ebed, uh, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So this is where the civil war begins. So we're about halfway, almost halfway through the chapter, and we'll come back next week, and we will finish out uh, the chapter and our look at the problems with, with tyranny. But as you can see, there's just tremendous similarities Become, between a lot of the actions that we see taking place, not just in the United States, but you look at what's happened to Canada, to our north during this pandemic, and the harshness which which their government um, controlled the people. And also in Australia and, and various other countries, you see the rise of tyranny out of the uh, so-called Democracies of the West. And we see how government uh, bring, uh, accumulates power to itself and then imposes that on the people. And just as we see here, they raise taxes. And that's what uh, Samuel warned about. That's what we see here because uh, you, you always have to follow the money. And so the power shifts, and we need to be careful. We need to be aware of what's going on in our own country, and we need to be in prayer about it. We need to be as involved as we can in understanding the process and in electing leaders that have integrity, and they're out there. I think we have several that are running in this uh, next cycle, and we need to do what we can to get them. Ele- if we, if uh, Otherwise, uh, there's just not going to be any hope. Our hope is in the Lord, and we put our trust in the Lord and not in men, but we do not live in a theocracy. The Lord doesn't come down and intervene, but we do um, recognize that we have to elect men and women to administer the government and to provide for security of the nation and provide for security against criminal element within and foreign elements without, secure the border, And if we don't do that, then it's just going to lead to the kind of complete internal collapse that we see in in judges. But we have to ultimately trust the Lord that whatever happens, uh, we're going to follow the Lord and serve him. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, and we pray that you would help us to. Uh, Be wise and understand what's going on in our world around us, not letting that discourage us, but being able to shine as lights, to give the gospel to our friends, to give hope to people that we know who may look at the same circumstances and feel just overwhelmed and hopeless. Uh, The world in the future is not going to look like the stable world that we had in the past, perhaps, but... Everything changes, and we have to be the ones who provide the strength, the leadership, the stability uh, for those around us. And that only comes from your word, and it only comes if we internalize your word. So we pray that we may continue to put your word first and that that is our priority, to build and develop our relationship with you. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.